chapter seven part one of memoirs of extraordinary popular delusions and the madness of crowds volume two this is a librivox recording all librivox recordings are in the public domain for more information or to volunteer please visit LibriVox.org. recording by matt mark graff memoirs of extraordinary popular delusions and the madness of crowds by charles mckay volume two chapter seven duels and ordeals part one there was an ancient sage philosopher who swore the world as he could prove was mad of fighting hudibras most writers in accounting for the origin of dueling derive it from the warlike habits of those barbarous nations who overran europe in the early centuries of the christian era and who knew no mode so effectual for settling their differences as the point of the sword in fact dueling taken in its primitive and broadest sense means nothing more than combating and is the universal resort of all wild animals including man to gain or defend their possessions or avenge their insults two dogs who tear each other for a bone or two bantams fighting on a dunghill for the love of some beautiful hen or two fools on wimbledon common shooting at each other to satisfy the laws of offended honour stand on the same footing in this respect and are each and all mere duellists as civilization advanced the best informed men naturally grew ashamed of such a mode of adjusting disputes and the promulgation of some sort of laws for obtaining redress for injuries was the consequence still there were many cases in which the allegations of an accuser could not be rebutted by any positive proof on the part of the accused and in all these which must have been exceedingly numerous in the early stages of european society the combat was resorted to from its decision there was no appeal god was supposed to nerve the arm of the combatant whose cause was just and to grant him the victory over his opponent as montesquieu well remarks this belief was not unnatural among a people just emerging from barbarism their manners being wholly warlike the man deficient in courage the prime virtue of his fellows was not unreasonably suspected of other vices besides cowardice which is generally found to be coexistent with treachery he therefore who showed himself most valiant in the encounter was absolved by public opinion from any crime with which he might be charged as a necessary consequence society would have been reduced to its original elements if the men of thought as distinguished from the men of action had not devised some means for taming the unruly passions of their fellows with this view governments commenced by restricting within the narrowest possible limits the cases in which it was lawful to prove or deny guilt by the single combat by the law of gondibaldu king of the burgundians passed in the year five hundred one the proof by combat was allowed in all legal proceedings in lieu of swearing in the time of charlemagne the burgundian practice had spread all over the empire of the franks and not only the suitors for justice but the witnesses and even the judges were obliged to defend their cause their evidence or their decision at the point of the sword louis the debonair his successor endeavoured to remedy the growing evil by permitting the duel only in appeals of felony in civil cases or issue joined in a writ of right 
and in cases of the court of chivalry or attacks upon a man's knighthood none were exempt from these trials but women the sick and the maimed and persons under fifteen or above sixty years of age ecclesiastics were allowed to produce champions in their stead this practice in the course of time extended to all trials of civil and criminal cases which had to be decided by battle the clergy whose dominion was an intellectual one never approved of a system of jurisprudence which tended so much to bring all things under the rule of the strongest arm from the first day they set their faces against duelling and endeavored as far as the prejudices of their age would allow them to curb the warlike spirit so alien from the principles of religion in the council of valencia and afterwards in the council of trent they excommunicated all persons engaged in duelling and not only them but even the assistants and spectators declaring the custom to be hellish and detestable and introduced by the devil for the destruction both of body and soul they added also that princes who connived at duels should be deprived of all temporal power jurisdiction and dominion over the places where they had permitted them to be fought it will be seen hereafter that this clause only encouraged the practice which it was intended to prevent but it was the blasphemous error of these early ages to expect that the almighty whenever he was called upon would work a miracle in favor of a person unjustly accused the priesthood in condemning the duel did not condemn the principle on which it was founded they still encouraged the popular belief of divine interference in all the disputes or differences that might arise among nations or individuals it was the very same principle that regulated the ordeals with which all their influence they supported against the duel by the former the power of deciding the guilt or innocence was vested wholly in their hands while by the latter they enjoyed no power or privilege at all it is not to be wondered at that for this reason if for no other they should have endeavored to settle all differences by the peaceful mode while that prevailed they were as they wished to be the first party in the state but while the strong arm of individual prowess was allowed to be the judge in all doubtful cases their power and influence became secondary to those of the nobility thus it was not the mere hatred of bloodshed which induced them to launch the thunderbolts of excommunication against the combatants it was a desire to retain the power which to do them justice they were in those times the persons best qualified to wield the germs of knowledge in civilization lay within the bounds of their order for they were the representatives of the intellectual as the nobility were of the physical power of man to centralize this power in the church and make it the judge of the last resort in all appeals both in civil and criminal cases they instituted five modes of trial the management of which lay wholly in their hands these were the oath upon the evangelists the ordeal of the cross and the fire ordeal for persons in the higher ranks the water ordeal for the humbler classes and lastly the corsned or bread and cheese ordeal for members of their own body the oath upon these evangelists was taken in the following manner the accused who was received to this proof says paul hay count du chatelet in his memoirs of bertrand du guesclin 
swore upon a copy of the new testament and on the relics of the holy martyrs or in their tombs that he was innocent of the crimes imputed to him he was also obliged to find twelve persons of acknowledged probity who should take oath at the same time that they believed him innocent this mode of trial led to very great abuses especially in cases of disputed inheritance where the hardest swearer was certain of the victory this abuse was one of the principal causes which led to the preference given to the trial by battle it is not at all surprising that a feudal baron or captain of the early ages should have preferred the chances of a fair fight with his opponent to a mode by which firm perjury would always be successful the trial by or judgment of the cross which charlemagne begged his sons to have recourse to in cases of disputes arising between them was performed thus when a person accused of any crime had declared his innocence upon oath and appealed to the cross for its judgment in his favor he was brought into the church before the altar the priests previously prepared two sticks exactly like one another upon one of which was carved a figure of the cross they were both wrapped up with great care and many ceremonies in a quantity of fine wool and laid upon the altar or on the relics of the saints a solemn prayer was then offered up to god that he would be pleased to discover by the judgment of his holy cross whether the accused person were innocent or guilty a priest then approached the altar and took up one of the sticks and the assistants unswathed it reverently if it was marked with the cross the accused person was innocent if unmarked he was guilty it would be unjust to assert that the judgments thus delivered were in all cases erroneous and it would be absurd to believe that they were left altogether to chance many true judgments were doubtless given and in all probability most conscientiously for we cannot but believe that the priests endeavored beforehand to convince themselves by secret inquiry and a strict examination of the circumstances whether the appellant were innocent or guilty and that they took up the crossed or uncrossed stick accordingly although to all other observers the sticks as enfolded in the wool might appear exactly similar those who enwrapped them could without any difficulty distinguish the one from the other by the fire ordeal the power of deciding was just as unequivocally left in their hands it was generally believed that fire would not burn the innocent and the clergy of course took care that the innocent or such as it was their pleasure or interest to declare so should be so warned before undergoing the ordeal as to preserve themselves without any difficulty from the fire one mode of the ordeal was to place red-hot ploughshares on the ground at certain distances and then blindfolding the accused person make him walk barefooted over them if he stepped regularly in the vacant spaces avoiding the fire he was adjudged innocent if he burned himself he was declared guilty as none but the clergy interfered with the arrangement of the ploughshares they could always calculate beforehand the result of the ordeal to find a person guilty they had only to place them at irregular distances and the accused was sure to tread upon one of them 
when emma wife of king ethelred and mother of edward the confessor was accused of a guilty familiarity with alwyn bishop of winchester she cleared her character in this manner the reputation not only of their order but of a queen being at stake a verdict of guilty was not to be apprehended from any ploughshares which priests had the heating of this ordeal was called judicium dei and sometimes the vulgaris purgatio and might also be tried by several other methods one was to hold in the hand unhurt a piece of red-hot iron of the weight of one two or three pounds when we read not only that men with hard hands but women of softer and more delicate skin could do this with impunity we must be convinced that the hands were previously rubbed with some preservative or that the apparently hot iron was merely cold iron painted red another mode was to plunge the naked arm into a cauldron of boiling water the priests then enveloped it in several folds of linen and flannel and kept the patient confined within the church and under their exclusive care for three days if at the end of that time the arm appeared without a scar the innocence of the accused person was firmly established footnote very similar to this is the fire ordeal of the modern hindus which is thus described in forbes oriental memoirs when a man accused of a capital crime chooses to undergo the ordeal trial he is closely confined for several days his right hand and arm are covered with thick wax cloth tied up and sealed in the presence of proper officers to prevent deceit in the english districts the covering was always sealed with the company's arms and the prisoner placed under an european guard at this time fixed for the ordeal a cauldron of oil is placed over a fire when it boils a piece of money is dropped into the vessel the prisoner's arm is unsealed and washed in the presence of his judges and accusers during this part of the ceremony the attendant brahmins supplicate the deity on receiving their benediction the accused plunges his hand into the boiling fluid and takes out the coin the arm is afterwards again sealed up until the time appointed for re-examination the seal is then broken if no blemish appears the prisoner is declared innocent if the contrary he suffers the punishment due to his crime on this trial the accused thus addresses the element before plunging his hand into the boiling oil thou o fire pervadest all things o cause of purity who givest evidence of virtue and sin declare the truth in this my hand if no juggling were practised the decisions by this ordeal would be all the same way but as some are by this means declared guilty and others innocent it is clear that the brahmins like the christian priests of the middle ages practice some deception in saving those whom they wish to be thought guiltless End footnote. as regards the water ordeal the same trouble was not taken it was a trial only for the poor and humble and whether they sank or swam was thought of very little consequence like the witches of more modern times the accused were thrown into a pond or river if they sank and were drowned their surviving friends had the consolation of knowing that they were innocent if they swam they were guilty in either case society was rid of them 
but of all the ordeals that which the clergy reserved for themselves was the one least likely to cause any member of their corps to be declared guilty the most culpable monster in existence came off clear when tried by this method it was called the corsned and was thus performed a piece of barley bread and a piece of cheese were laid upon the altar and the accused priest in his full canonicals and surrounded by all the pompous adjuncts of roman ceremony pronounced certain conjurations and prayed with great fervency for several minutes the burden of the prayer was that if he were guilty of the crime laid to his charge god would send his angel gabriel to stop his throat that he might not be able to swallow the bread and cheese there is no instance upon record of a priest having been choked in this manner footnote an ordeal very like this is still practiced in india consecrated rice is the article chosen instead of bread and cheese instances are not rare in which through the force of imagination guilty persons are not able to swallow a single grain conscious of their crime and fearful of the punishment of heaven they feel a suffocating sensation in their throat when they attempt it and they fall on their knees and confess all that is laid to their charge the same thing no doubt would have applied with the bread and cheese of the roman church if it had been applied to any others but ecclesiastics the latter had too much wisdom to be caught in a trap of their own setting and footnote when under pope gregory the seventh it was debated whether the gregorian chant should be introduced into castile instead of the musarabique given by st isidore of seville to the churches of that kingdom very much ill-feeling was excited the churches refused to receive the novelty and it was proposed that the affair should be decided by a battle between two champions one chosen from each side the clergy would not consent to a mode of settlement which they considered impious but had no objection to try the merits of each chant by the fire ordeal a great fire was accordingly made and a book of the gregorian and one of the musarabic chant were thrown into it that the flames might decide which was most agreeable to god by refusing to burn it cardinal baronius who says he was an eye-witness of the miracle relates that the book of the gregorian chant was no sooner laid upon the fire than it leaped out uninjured visibly and with a great noise every one present thought that the saints had decided in favor of pope gregory after a slight interval the fire was extinguished but wonderful to relate the other book of st isidore was found covered with ashes but not injured in the slightest degree the flames had not even warmed it upon this it was resolved that both were alike agreeable to god and that they should be used by turns in all the churches of seville if the ordeals had been confined to questions like this the laity would have had little or no objection to them but when they were introduced as decisive in all the disputes that might arise between man and man the opposition of all those whose prime virtue was personal bravery was necessarily excited in fact the nobility from a very early period began to look with jealous eyes upon them they were not slow to perceive their true purport 
which was no other than to make the church the last court of appeal in all cases both civil and criminal and not only did the nobility prefer the ancient mode of single combat from this cause in itself a sufficient one but they clung to it because an acquittal gained by those displays of courage and address which the battle afforded was more creditable in the eyes of their compeers than one which it required but little or none of either to accomplish to these causes may be added another which was perhaps more potent than either in raising the credit of the judicial combat at the expense of the ordeal the noble institution of chivalry was beginning to take root and notwithstanding the clamours of the clergy war was made the sole business of life and the only elegant pursuit of the aristocracy the fine spirit of honour was introduced any attack upon which was only to be avenged in the lists within sight of applauding crowds whose verdict of approbation was far more gratifying than the cold and formal acquittal of the ordeal lothaire son of louis i abolished that by fire and the trial of the cross within his dominions but in england they were allowed so late as the time of henry the third in the early part of whose reign they were prohibited by an order of council in the meantime the crusades had brought the institution of chivalry to the full height of perfection the chivalric spirit soon achieved the downfall of the ordeal system and established the judicial combats on a basis too firm to be shaken it is true that with the fall of chivalry as an institution fell the tournament and the encounter in the lists but the duel their offspring has survived to this day defying the efforts of sages and philosophers to eradicate it among all the errors bequeathed to us by a barbarous age it has proved the most pertinacious it has put variance between men's reason and their honour put the man of sense on a level with the fool and made thousands who condemn it submit to it or practise it those who are curious to see the manner in which these combatants were regulated may consult the learned montesquieu where they will find a copious summary of the code of ancient duelling truly does he remark in speaking of the clearness and excellence of the arrangements that as there were many wise matters which were conducted in a very foolish manner so there were many foolish matters conducted very wisely no greater exemplification of it could be given than the wise and religious rules of the absurd and blasphemous trial by battle in the ages that intervened between the crusades and the new era that was opened out by the invention of gunpowder and printing a more rational system of legislation took root the inhabitants of cities engaged in the pursuits of trade and industry were content to acquiesce in the decisions of their judges and magistrates whenever any differences arose among them unlike the class above them their habits and manners did not lead them to seek the battlefield on every slight occasion a dispute as to the price of a sack of corn a bale of broad cloth or a cow could be more satisfactorily adjusted before the mayor or bailiff of their district even the martial knights and nobles quarrelsome as they were 
began to see that the trial by battle would lose its dignity and splendor if too frequently resorted to governments also shared this opinion and on several occasions restricted the cases in which it was legal to proceed to this extremity in france before the time of louis the ninth duels were permitted only in cases of les majestes rape incendiarism assassination and burglary louis the ninth by taking off all restriction made them legal in civil cases this was not found to work well and in thirteen o three philip the fair judged it necessary to confine them in criminal matters to state offences rape and incendiarism and in civil cases to questions of disputed inheritance knighthood was allowed to be the best judge of its own honor and might defend or avenge it as often as occasion arose among the earliest duels upon record is a very singular one that took place in the reign of louis the second a d eight hundred seventy eight ingelgarius count of gentinois was one morning discovered by his countess dead in bed at her side gontois a relation of the count accused the countess of having murdered her husband to whom he asserted she had long been unfaithful and challenged her to produce a champion to do battle in her behalf that he might establish her guilt by killing him all the friends and relatives of the countess believed in her innocence but gantois was so stout and bold and renowned a warrior that no one dared to meet him for which as Bontom quaintly says the unhappy countenance began to despair when a champion suddenly appeared in the person of ingelgarius count of anjou a boy of sixteen years of age who had been held by the countess on the baptismal font and received her husband's name he tenderly loved his godmother and offered to do battle in her cause against any and every opponent the king endeavored to persuade the generous boy from his enterprise urging the great strength tried skill and invincible courage of the challenger but he persisted in his resolution to the great sorrow of all the court who said it was a cruel thing to permit so brave and beautiful a child to rush to such butchery and death when the lists were prepared the countess duly acknowledged her champion and the combatants commenced the onset gontoin rode so fiercely at his antagonist and hit him on the shield with such impetuosity that he lost his own balance and rolled to the ground the young count as gontoin fell passed his lance through his body and then dismounting cut off his head which bontemps says he presented to the king who received it most graciously and was very joyful as much so if any one had made him a present of a city the innocence of the countess was then proclaimed with great rejoicings and she kissed her godson and wept over his neck with joy in the presence of all the assembly when the earl of essex was accused by robert de montfort before king henry the second in eleven sixty two of having traitorously suffered the royal standard of england to fall from his hands in a skirmish with the welsh at kozel five years previously the latter offered to prove the truth of the charge by single combat the earl of essex accepted the challenge and the lists were prepared near reading an immense concourse of persons assembled to witness the battle 
essex at first fought stoutly but losing his temper and self-command he gave an advantage to his opponent which soon decided the struggle he was unhorsed and so severely wounded that all present thought he was dead at the solicitation of his relatives the monk of the abbey of reading were allowed to remove the body for interment and montfort was declared the victor essex however was not dead but stunned only and under the care of the monks recovered in a few weeks from his bodily injuries the wounds of his mind were not so easily healed though a loyal and brave subject the whole realm believed him a traitor and a coward because he had been vanquished he could not brook to return to the world deprived of the good opinion of his fellows he therefore made himself a monk and passed the remainder of his days within the walls of the abbey du chatelet relates a singular duel that was proposed in spain a christian gentleman of seville sent a challenge to a moorish cavalier offering to prove against him with whatever weapons he might choose that the religion of jesus christ was holy and divine and that of mahomet impious and damnable the spanish prelates did not choose that christianity should be compromised within their jurisdiction by the result of any such combat the moorish cavalier might perchance have proved to be the stronger and they commanded the knight under pain of excommunication to withdraw the challenge the same author relates that under otho i a question arose among jurisconsultants viz whether children who had lost their father should share equally with their uncles in the property of their grandfather at the death of the latter the difficulty of this question was found so insurmountable that none of the lawyers of that day could resolve it it was at last decreed that it should be decided by single combat two champions were accordingly chosen one for and the other against the claims of the little ones after a long struggle the champion of the uncles was unhorsed and slain and it was therefore decided that the right of the grandchildren was established and that they should enjoy the same portion of their grandfather's possessions that their father would have done had he been alive under pretext just as strange and often more frivolous that these duels continued to be fought in most of the countries of europe during the whole of the fourteenth and fifteenth centuries a memorable instance of the slightness of the pretext on which a man could be forced to fight a duel to the death occurs in the memoirs of the brave constable du Guesclin, the advantage he had obtained in a skirmish before rennes against william brembre an english captain so preyed on the spirits of william trussel the chosen friend and companion of the latter that nothing would satisfy him but a mortal combat with the constable the duke of lancaster whom trussel applied for permission to fight the great frenchman forbade the battle as not warranted by the circumstances trussel nevertheless burned with a fierce desire to cross his weapon with du guesclin and sought every occasion to pick a quarrel with him having so good a will for it of course he found a way a relative of his had been taken prisoner by the constable in whose hands he remained till he was able to pay his ransom trussel resolved to make a quarrel out of this and dispatched a messenger to du guesclin demanding the release of his prisoner and offering a bond 
had a distant date for the payment of the ransom. Du Guesclin, who had received intimation of the hostile purposes of the Englishman, sent back word that he would not accept his bond, neither would he release his prisoner until the full amount of his ransom was paid. As soon as this answer was received, Trussel sent a challenge to the constable, demanding reparation for the injury he had done in his honor by refusing his bond and offering a mortal combat to be fought three strokes with the lance, three with the sword, and three with the dagger. Du Guesclin, although ill in bed with the ague, accepted the challenge and gave notice to the Marshal d'Andregem, the king's lieutenant-general in Lower Normandy, that he might fix the day and the place of combat. The marshal made all necessary arrangements, upon condition that he who was beaten should pay a hundred florins of gold to feast the nobles and gentlemen who were witnesses of the encounter. The Duke of Lancaster was very angry with his captain, and told him that it would be a shame to his knighthood and his nation if he forced on a combat with the brave Du Guesclin at a time when he was enfeebled by disease and stretched on the couch of suffering upon these representations trussel ashamed of himself sent notice to du guesclin that he was willing to postpone the duel until such time as he should be perfectly recovered du guesclin replied that he could not think of postponing the combat after all the nobility had received notice of it that he had sufficient strength left not only to meet but to conquer such an opponent as he was and that if he did not make his appearance in the lists at the time appointed he would publish him everywhere as a man unworthy to be called a knight or to wear an honourable sword by his side trussel carried this haughty message to the duke of lancaster who immediately gave permission for the battle on the day appointed the two combatants appeared in the lists in the presence of several thousand spectators du guesclin was attended by the flower of the french nobility including the marshal de beaumanois olivier de mauny bertrand de saint pan and the viscount de la belliere while the englishmen appeared with no more than the customary retinue of two seconds two squires two coutiliers or daggermen and two trumpeters the first onset was unfavorable to the constable he received so heavy a blow on his shield-arm that he fell forward to the left upon his horse's neck and being weakened by his fever was nearly thrown to the ground all his friends thought he could never recover himself and began to deplore his ill fortune but du guesclin collected his energies for a decisive effort and at the second charge aimed a blow at the shoulder of his enemy which felled him to the earth mortally wounded he then sprang from his horse sword in hand with the intention of cutting off the head of his fallen foe when the marshal d'andregem threw a golden wand into the arena as a signal that hostilities should cease du guesclin was proclaimed the victor amid the joyous acclamations of the crowd and retiring left the field to the meaner combatants who were afterwards to make sport for the people four english and as many french squires fought for some time with pointless lances when the french gaining the advantage the sports were declared at an end end of chapter seven part one recording by matt markgraf